Hello, and welcome to the four weeks of Halloween, and here we are on week four, which is Halloween for kids. So I'm Mari Eckstein-Gower. I'm Jamie Gower, and this is The Adventures of Isabel by the great Ogden Nash. Isabel met an enormous bear. Isabel, Isabel didn't care. The bear was hungry. The bear was ravenous. The bear's big mouth was cruel and cavernous. The bear said, Isabel, glad to meet you. How do, Isabel? Now I'll eat you. Isabel, Isabel didn't worry. Isabel didn't scream or scurry. She washed her hands and she straightened her hair up. Then Isabel quietly ate the bear up. Once on a night as black as pitch, Isabel met a wicked old witch. The witch's face was cross and wrinkled. The witch's gums with teeth were sprinkled. Ho, ho, Isabel, the old witch crowed. I'll turn you into an ugly toad. Isabel? Isabel didn't worry. Isabel didn't scream or scurry. She showed no rage and she showed no rancor. But she turned the witch into milk and drank her. Isabel met a hideous giant. Isabel continued self-reliant. The giant was hairy. The giant was horrid. He had one eye in the middle of his forehead. Good morning, Isabel, the giant said. I'll grind your bones to make my bread. Isabel, Isabel didn't worry. Isabel didn't scream or scurry. She nibbled the zwieback that she always fed off. And when it was gone, she cut the giant's head off. Isabel met a troublesome doctor. He punched and he poked till he really shocked her. The doctor's talk was of coughs and chills, and the doctor's satchel bulged with pills. The doctor said unto Isabel, Swallow this, it will make you well. Isabel, Isabel didn't worry. Isabel didn't scream or scurry. She took those pills from the pill concoctor, and Isabel calmly cured the doctor. Oh, I love that. That's such a, such a great Oh, poem. that's such a, oh, yeah. He, he and, and Edward Lear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just oh, so great. Two guys that just, just can meter the crap out of something. Oh, yeah. You know, when we look at Halloween, we look at uh, trick-or-treating specifically, and, and especially if we're thinking about Halloween for kids, and that's getting treats dressing up in costumes, all of this stuff. And we, I think we think of it sort of as our invented holiday, but it goes way, way back, way back even before the Romans. And it's a part of a very uh, strong Celtic tradition. I, I, I was just amazed at some of the stuff when I did research on this. And uh, the in the Celtic communities, and most of those are, when you think of them, they're, they're northern nations. So mm. at around end of October, November, that's when things are starting to get so dark, you know, the harvests are in and what have you. And those people regarded um, the last day of October, first day of November, that that was the beginning of the new year. And that was a time when you were settling debts, you were doing new contracts. It was a, a time of transitions, not only in the mortal world, but also in the spiritual world. Wow, so the whole, the whole new year 
at the, this thing, not not just the equinox. No, no. Well, also that it comes at the period between the equinox and the solstice. It's it's that very between time, just as uh, May Day is between a solstice and equinox. The equinox is in between the solstices. Yeah. No. Yes, yes. Yes. So this is that point between those. Right. So it's right in the middle. It's right in the middle of those those things, and so the um, so this is this is a, a very potent time uh, for these different cultures, and that they were looking at a time when um, Samhain, who was the Lord of the uh, Dead would come up on on November 1st and all of the souls of the dead would be reevaluated. It's kind of like they had a yearly contract for where are you going to be? Are you are you uh you know have have I don't know whether it's like you could you could be bad in the land of the dead or what, but it was a thing where the souls would be out in the world among the living and so part of the thing about masquerading was that people were afraid because some of these souls were bad and they would do bad things to you. You know, they make your cows get sick. They they make, you know, your fire go out. They do all kinds of, of things that, that you, they, these people just didn't want to have happen. And so they would dress up in costumes to look like ghouls so that the the bad souls that were sort of traveling around the world at that time wouldn't recognize them. They would think that they were also souls traveling the world, that they didn't re- recognize them as mortal people. And then the um, the whole thing about giving treats was that people wanted the idea of their um, ancestors having a, a decent time of it. In the in the afterlife, so they hoped that if they put out you know bread or or milk or different kinds of foods, that Samhain would look kindly upon their uh, their ancestors, and that they'd maybe even let the ancestors come and visit their home for an evening, and so that. It really was was kind of an interesting thing to discover how old this whole tradition is. And then later on, when uh, Christianity took over uh, and and assimilated a lot of these different traditions in the eighth um, century, I think it was Pope Gregory the Third established All Souls and All Saints Day. So they were recognizing that this was just such a powerful tradition across cultures that they were um, adapting it to their religion, which, you know, was still kind of new mm-hmm. in, in the 8th century, because mm-hmm. it was the first to the 4th century where they were really establishing Christianity. Mm-hmm. So what would happen was instead of having your your treats that you were giving to uh, Samhain, you would have what were called soul cakes. And you would distribute these to, you would bake these. These are very rich little cakes. And then you would distribute them to the poor. And the poor supposedly then would pay, pray for your ancestors. 
And then later on, of course, it developed that young men uh, and, and little boys would go around from house to house singing a, um, a, a soul cake song. And then they would um, get money or, or different kinds of treats, and then they would pray for the, uh, for, for the ancestors. And it, it's great. You know, I even found a copy of, of a um, Hello Mass soul cake song. Okay. And it's, soul day, soul day, we be a, come a soulin'. Pray good people, remember the poor, and give us a soul cake. One for Peter, two for Paul, three for for him that made us all. An apple, a pear, a plum, or a cherry, or any good thing to make us merry. Soul day, soul day, we have been praying for the soul departed. So pray, good people, give us a cake. For we are all poor people, well known to you before, so give us a cake for charity's sake, and our blessing will leave you at your door. And so the young men would sing this, and then they get some sort of a treat, and then they go to the next house. And I just love it that this is this is so old, that that it's a, a very interesting tradition that that we don't even realize. Wow, that's, I mean, we're talking millennia. Yeah, old. yeah, yeah, very, very old. And and that whole concept of the fabric being thin between the two worlds of the living and the dead during this one night of the year is very, very old. You know, it's it's also just, as, as somebody that loves stories, um, it's fascinating to me also that that single concept that this is a time when um, the barriers are thin has been used in so many ways. I mean, that's the basis for pretty much everything H.P. Lovecraft ever wrote. Oh, yes. Um, it was, you know, it's uh, the basis of um, the whole uh, Dia de los Muertos. Oh yes, tradition. In fact, we even saw the movie recently right. that was based on on this, uh, the movie Coco. Yes, which is is actually a, a a great one for kids. If we are talking about Halloween for kids, um, and it's that same thing of there is a um, this kid is actually able to visit the land of the dead, which is looks like a great place. It really does. It's 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 so cool. It's very fun and colorful. We got on to Coco. Did I? Did, was there anything else you wanted to say about? Um... Well, no. I I mean, I could go on into history, <laughs> obviously, but I don't want to bore the listeners with all of this stuff. I I think it's just interesting talking specifically about Halloween, and then later on, it it really did evolve into uh, starting as a very adult holiday. And in your, I'm thinking like in the the 1700s or what have you, where the entertainment would be these um, play parties, mm-hmm. where people would gather in in homes or or in um, town halls or um, you know probably even church any any kind of a large enough public space, and it would be games and dances and um, 
little plays put on and, and music. And I, I kind of picture some of the movies where they show the, the country dances for uh, Jane Austen, you know, Sense mm-hmm. and Sensibility and, and uh, Pride and Prejudice of these people going there. And, and in the Americas, of course, they had more square dancing and, and mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. But that was what was going on in, in those holidays. And it eventually went back to kids. But I think going back to kids was a little bit more of a thing that happened in the uh, 1900s. Uh-huh. I think, though, there, there seemed like there was a move uh, starting maybe in the 60s, certainly in the 70s, of adults embracing it. Yes, that went back to adults embracing yeah. it, definitely. And, and, and folks, you aren't having auditory hallucinations. That, that is our dogs barking in the background. Uh, but we're going to keep going, because if we stopped every time our dogs barked, uh, we would get nothing done. No, nothing. Um, absolutely. It's funny, because I'm thinking of when I was a kid, of course, there'd, there'd be in the, in the uh, entertainment section of the paper, the ads for the exotic erotic ball. <laughs> which was held in San Francisco. Oh, of course, San every, Francisco. Every, yeah, every Halloween. And that, that certainly looked different than walking around my neighborhood with a pillowcase. But um, uh, anyway, it's uh, so yeah, I think uh, that's one of the things that they got us into this podcast and the fascination is all the things that Halloween is, all the things that Halloween is becoming. Yes. Um, and it's a and it's a constantly evolving or tweaking. I don't know if I'd say evolving, but it gets tweaked um, by by people and and that it as they embrace it and they make it their own. I'm going to say evolving. Okay. I'm going to say because because just changing the beak between a finch and another finch, that's a tweak. But it's that's an what evolution. God, Darwin, it's Darwin an... <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um. Okay, that's no, that's that's fast. I, you know, it's so funny because you told me about some of this stuff before, but thinking now about millennia, um, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. So we snuck in a mention of the movies. Do we want to? Um, I think you should continue with that. Yeah, um, you know, we're we're again we're going for the lighter uh, recommendations, like another one of my favorite. Halloween movies is Trick or Treat. Trick R, the letter R, Treat. And there is no way I'd recommend that for kids. That's that's a that's a horrifying. Um, it's a comedy for the most part, but it is a horrifying. But so we're gonna concentrate today on the stuff that's on on just on spooky. Yeah. And barely that in certain cases. Um, and this is things where if it's the weekend, if the weather's terrible, maybe you're not going out with whatever uh, small fry you're dealing with, um, or they're, you know, they've watched you, um, just carefully following every single one of our recommendations for the past three weeks. And they're thinking, well, what about me? Um, hopefully this will be some recommendations that you guys can share. Because uh, that's the other thing, too, is we try to get recommendations that aren't going to drive an adult insane. Oh, definitely. So, um, you know, the movie is really funny because I thought this one wasn't available. And I was so happy to find out that you can you can get this on Apple Plus. It is in other places. Is if you've never seen, it's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown. 
Really? I love this thing. It's It sets the mood. It explains mid-century American Halloween better than anything I've seen. Um, it has a definite mood to it. Uh, there's fun sequences. It's a really, there's some very sweet things about um, you're a person I like. You're doing something I find inexplicable, but I'm going to hang out with you so you're not alone. So it's it's not going to be a groaner like the Scooby-Doo stuff. No, no. We recently watched a Scooby-Doo movie that, that had a, a strong opening, strong, hilarious, and then got boring. Yeah. How could that even happen? Yeah. But no, this is because also it's, it's only half an hour. Yeah. And they get things done. And I will say, and I, because I saw this, I was in the demo when it came out in the demo. The, You're talking the, about Charlie Brown. The Charlie Brown. Yeah. yeah not Scooby-Doo. Actually, I saw the original, the very first episode of Scooby-Doo, I saw in the wild. Um, I knew In it, your backyard? In, the, in my backyard. Oh, okay. I meant in that when it was transmitted. Back in the day when you had to be in front of a television when the thing was blasted into the air or you missed it forever. Oh, how crude. How crude. It was a, it was a barbaric time. Um, but, you know, I fed the dinosaurs and then I came in and, and I watched Scooby-Doo. Anyway, back on It's a Great Pumpkin. Yes. Um, there is one moment where even as a little kid, I got a definite frisson. Um, and that's the French term for yeah. the, the tingly feeling. Yeah, tingly oh, feeling. Oh, I know if I, I know you're gonna know. I'm just I'm just telling possibly the listener, although we know that our listeners are the most erudite and um, intelligent people. No. They're listening to us. They're listening to us, thank goodness. Um there's there's a one moment of really oh, what what? And you know, it's quickly resolved. So anyway, it's a fun, gentle little thing. Uh, it's Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. It's on Apple Plus. Uh, we mentioned Coco already. Yes, um, that's Disney. That's Disney, and uh, that's very fun. And 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 a, and a nice way of of looking at a different culture. Mm-hmm. Well, different culture from mine. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, you had you you found some one you found a very interesting book i'd never heard of and then you brought up a book that's almost cliche but actually really really works in this context oh you're talking about maurice sendak's mommy mommy it's a pop-up book and it is just so enchanting and the engineering in this book is just mind-boggling and I love pop-up books, and I think that, that they are uh, just frequently undervalued by the general public, but that's oh. just for kids, and they are not. They are just a wonder to see some of these things. And, and this particular book is, is just amazing. With, and it's one of the, uh, I think, one of the last things that Maurice Sendak did before wow. he died. Yeah. Wow. Um, it was it was up there in in the the final days, but uh, I think that 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 is just a thing that is so much fun for anybody to look at. And can I, can I mention also about about that is 
one, I think it's it's an interesting introduction to the universal monsters. Yes. And by universal, we mean universal pictures, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, Invisible Man, Phantom of the Opera, and Creature. I don't know how many of them are in there. but A lot of them. A yeah. lot of them, yeah. Um, so it is a fun, non-scary introduction to these guys. Also, it's the trope of monsters being scared by a human child. Yes. Before Monsters, Inc. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. But yeah. but that's another fun thing yeah. of a little bit of... And and there's always his classic, uh, Where the Wild Things Are, and everybody knows that one. But that's that's a fun one for for kids to just kind of think about being with friendly monsters. Well, and also thinking about monsters responding to their energy. Yes. Because when you're a kid, you're used to being told... No, especially when you're enjoying yourself. Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. You know, I was going to bring up, um, we, we had talked about um, the Neil Gaiman quote. I think that's a great time to talk about Neil Gaiman's quote. So, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. I think that sums up what the whole purpose of a lot of Grimm's fairy tales were. The whole thing of, of you know, the, the child, you know, beating the witch or that there is justice at the end. I mean, some of the things are, when you look at the original Grimm's, they're pretty. Grim. Uh, Grim, yes. Yeah. I was trying to think of a different word, but that was the only <laughs> word that came up. Yes, yes, that they are, they are very grim. Uh, but yeah, that that, that 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 is a thing that we, and it may be why people watch horror movies is to have that sense of, yeah, you can get in there and beat that bad stuff. And, and we need that, especially now, I think. Well, and I think that that's, to me, that's one of the purposes of Halloween, is we take all these images of of death and suffering, and we kind of play with them. We make fun of them, almost in this in the sense of uh, the producers, the springtime for Hitler. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I think that's with with the kids. We're saying, hey, you're going to be told this thing is scary, but look, here's a comedy. You know, here's a young Frankenstein. Yes, and um, so. This is something that you can laugh at, and um, I just think that's that's super valuable. An- another book that is really fun to read, not only as an adult but also to read to kids, is uh, Fairy Tales by Terry Jones, and I'm talking about the Monty Python Terry Jones, and he's he's written actually. Um, two different books for this one was written for his daughter and then he wrote Eric the Viking for his son and but the fairy tales one I think for this season is is very sweet we we read it to our kids yes. when they were of that age and and it's great because uh if you read it to your kids there'll be one or two that will be their favorites I can't guarantee you which ones they are because there's such a range they speak to a lot of different kids and a lot of different kids' interests. There's even a couple that are kind of spooky. Um, there was one or two that I had to either hurry through, modify slightly, or just say, oh, well, we'll finish this one later. 
And, you know, like a year or two later, they were fine with it because none of them are that spooky. No, no. But, but he does, he does rains. It's really nice. Yeah. I think that, that that's one that is just a nice kind of, of different view of fairy tales from what the usual tropes that you're going to be seeing around. And yeah, he, he was great. Yeah. The, the, the kids in these fairy tales are a lot more active. Yeah than they are in the, the traditional fairy tales. So, moving on, instead of comics, you have a game. Yeah, the, um, it was funny because I, I wasn't... And some of this is just I didn't think as much about comics because the books that we're talking about have pictures. Yes. What was the quote you heard from Bruce Coville? Oh, that um, is it. That that that's the really tragedy of adulthood is that once you you become an adult, they take away your pictures, essentially in in books, and yeah. and that whole bit of my whole comment about why why can't we have the fun stuff too? Yeah, you 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 get good at this thing called reading. And, and they go, yeah. okay, great. Here, you get to read this now. And there's no pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're so that that's partly why I wasn't thinking of comics. And you brought up a brilliant idea of the game Grim Fandango. Yes. And I would say also it's the perfect game to bring up because it's been remastered. And um, it's now available on pretty much any platform you would conceive of. So odds are the device you're listening to this on will play this game for you. And Grim Fandango is an adaptation. It's positive, you know, that there's a, a journey that the souls take to get to their final destination. And one of their views is that the better you've been in life, the shorter your journey. And there's a guy, Manny Calaveras, who's literally a travel agent for these guys. And when he gets a really good client, they get a ticket on the express train. Um, and if he gets a client that's not that good, they get a map and a walking stick. And he's starting to get, he's not getting the good clients anymore. He's getting these guys that have a really long slog. Everybody makes it, but some people have to really work to get there. And he uncovers, it's basically, it's a film noir set in the afterlife with these animated, these living skeletons. And he's got um, a, a spirit, um, a comical spirit that attends him. And he goes across in this on this journey. I mean, it's in the game. You at one point run a casino. At one point, you're on a submarine. They get attacked. Gets attacked by an octopus. It's really fun. It's got um, a very good spirit to it, and it's the old-fashioned kind of game where everything's a puzzle, and you have to maybe get this item from this guy and use that, and then put that in front of the door, and then ring the doorbell, and then the person comes out, and the thing falls over. So it's, it's that kind of thing. Uh, it's a fun little game. It's set in a very interesting um, time. And again, whatever you've got, it will probably play it. Um, and it's made by a, a, a legend in comedy gaming. I think that's yeah, Tim Schaefer. So uh, I highly recommend it. 
Uh, how about we move on now to podcasts because, and you're the one who's going to know about that. Oh, I, I will say that, that when we came up with this idea, there were two things that I wanted to recommend to people. And one was, uh, Van Helsing. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and the other was this podcast called Scary Stories for Creepy Kids. And it's a podcast hosted by two little girls. And I'm actually little kids. Actually little kids. Actually little kids. Oh, that's brilliant. Actually little kids. They're like six years old, I think, maybe. Um, You'd have to listen. And they write the stories. So, you know, like their dad's engineering for them. And obviously their dad's a fan. And so they've been around these stuff. So they write, and they're kind of scary stories is the girl that falls asleep at the drive-in and then she finds herself in the movie and she can't get out of the movie. And when she finally gets out of the movie, she realizes now she's the old woman at the drive-in who takes the tickets. And, you know, so these things are like five, 10 minutes long. They will literally end with dun, dun, dun. Oh, how charming. It's a great example also to kids that, yeah, you can do this. I mean, admittedly, they're they're getting probably a fair amount of help from their dad in terms of the logistics of the thing. But in terms of the writing and the performing, it's all them. And and they do a wonderful job. And it's just cute. Cute as a bug. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So um, that's our recommendation for podcasts. You know, we talk about the ratings. Um, everything we've talked about so far is is spooky or even occasionally spooky. I decided this one's rated A for adorable. Oh, a new rating. A okay. new rating. A for Great. adorable. Well, are we going to move on to, to uh, music? Yes, we are. And at some point, we're going to cut over to a section we're going to record with uh, composer and musician and all-around bon vivant, Jean Smay, who's not only going to talk to us about what is scary music, but he's going to talk to us about what makes scary music scary. Oh, that sounds interesting. It should be fun, and I think it's coming right about now. Yay! And you remember that we've been um, trying to figure out what exactly is Halloween music. And luckily, we have an expert in both Halloween and in music uh, from the very roots up, a talented composer, a talented musician, um, and a talented uh, Godzilla fan, among other things. We are so lucky. We are so lucky to have with us John Smay. John, how are you? Hey, hello, everybody. It's it's great to be here. I just dropped in from my dirigible. Those yes. of you on the podcast, don't notice that I'm fully dressed for Halloween in my steampunk outfit. Uh, I forgot it was a podcast. <laughs> I know it, it, it's it's too bad this is an audio only because I'm 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 here talking to a man in a bow tie. Uh, with a very dandy mustache, a top hat, and goggles. Yeah, so I just stepped off my my uh, dirigible, and I'm I'm very excited to talk about Halloween music. Um, as you know, uh, Jamie, I've done uh, 22 Halloween shows over the last 22 years. It, it's sort of a, a rite of passenger every year for the band, and uh, this year uh, I get to talk to you about what makes music scary. 
Yeah, I'm very interested in that because um, we talk about scary music, but um, again, and I, I think you're uniquely qualified, what is the nuts and bolts? What is it that makes music scary? Well, that's a good question. I, I gave it some thought. I, I went and listened to some of my favorite Halloween cuts of music and uh, some of the things that, that we've done during these Halloween shows. And I, I discovered six different things, and, and they're all pretty easy to understand. They're not really uh, technically musically difficult, there. but but you can all re- you know recollect. The first thing about Halloween music is it's usually disturbing. Now, how does a musician make it disturbing? Well, they use all this strange harmony and, and what we would call dissonance, notes that don't fit together. And that makes it disturbing because this doesn't sound like it's supposed to. Uh, the second thing, of course, is a lot of Halloween music is very intense. Now, some of it can be kind of laid back, but but usually there's an aggressive melody. Dun, dun, dun. You know, there's something happening that's really aggressive, what we would call syncopated, that is really jumping forward. Okay, so, so it's not just volume, it's it's rhythm. Oh, yeah, it's, it's aggressive melodies, often repeating, and the examples we'll listen to will, will give you a sense of that. Third thing is dramatic. I mean, Halloween music is not made for lovers. <laughs> it's it's dramatic, man. It's it's got slowly ascending melodies that build and build uh, or just come at you, and so it, it really is dramatic. So disturbing, intense, dramatic, and then I would say I was trying to find the right word, visceral. Like a lot of Halloween music is really just in your gut. It, it uses certain simpler scales and lower notes. Sometimes it's just sort of you know build on that whole sense of drama and disturbingness. And then finally, there's a couple more that I think most of the good Halloween composers do. Is it's strange? Music, Halloween music is is maybe hummable, kind of, but you have to be in a weird mood. It's sort of very organic and unpredictable how the music's going to go. And then finally, I would say it's often surreal. Like it uses like notes all over the sonic spectrum, lots of weird instruments, and so there's really a, a good bag of stuff for for composers to use: disturbing, intense. Traumatic, visceral, strange, and surreal. I mean, it's the stuff nightmares are made of. You okay? You mentioned instruments. Are there particular instruments that are scarier than others? Well, that's interesting. Um, I think lots of instruments are used in Halloween music. Strings are particularly creepy because they're so soft, and we're used to them being sort of gentle and nice to listen to. And all this disturbing, intense strangeness really is a contrast with strings. Um, piano can be uh, disturbing if it's played, again, with sort of uncomfortable ways. Um, but I would say, and even in the three examples here, you know, the Godzilla uses a lot of horns. Uh, I'm going to show an example of strings. Um, the, you know, the, the music from Frankenstein is a rock tune. So I guess it's interesting. I think almost any instrument can be scary depending on how you play it. However, I have yet to hear a, uh, you know, a, a sack butt or English horn Halloween theme. But who knows? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Although, you know, certainly the, the bagpipe was designed to be scary, but designed to be scary on the battlefield. So it's probably a <laughs> well, different thing entirely. Well, it's some people play it, I'll tell you. But anyway. <laughs> so you mentioned, now it's funny because as you brought up these, these elements, um, I started thinking of... of different pieces of music that are my favorite and go, oh, 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 that's why, that's why Danny Elfman, for instance, does that. But you said you had some specific examples. I do. I do. Thanks for asking. Cause I've been thinking about these six ideas and, and are, you know, to, to validate whether that's true. 
I've been listening to several things. I've got three, I've got sort of a potpourri of scary music here. First, I want to uh, examine the Edgar Winter classic, Frankenstein. Now, Frankenstein came out in the 70s. It was, it was actually one of the greatest uh, rock tunes. That It was actually the, the most popular instrumental tune in rock history. And it was, Edgar Winter Group wasn't even going to put it on their record. They only come out at night. They, they just had some extra tape in the studio, and they were jamming this, so they thought they'd throw it on the end of the record. It became the most popular thing they ever did. So that's a, it's a common story. But now, Frank, this, this theme of Frankenstein uses a lot of things I just talked about. It's got an aggressive melody. It uses these visceral scales low in the, in, in the, in the instruments. Um, it's got this unpredictable form that changes all the time, and, um, and it's very aggressive. And so, so Frankenstein really, uh, really is a, a scary tune, but it's also a grooving tune. Later in the song, they've got this thing. That's very aggressive and pounding and repeating. And so Frankenstein is, fits all the criteria for a great, scary song, even though it's also fun to listen to and it's a pop hit. But now I want to talk about the next example, which is the, the theme from Godzilla. Now, Godzilla came out in 54, 52, it's 54, I'm pretty sure. It, it revolutionized film. It was the first monster movie, other than King Kong, it was the first monster movie in Japan that really created a dark, sort of scary bit about monsters. Monsters were no fun in Godzilla. Godzilla means business. And the composer was a, a classical composer in Japan who was very well known. He just decided to do it. And so the music is a full orchestra, but he's got to make Godzilla scary. So what does he do? He does a lot of the things we just talked about. He uses this visceral music. The, you know, the scales he uses are very simple and ancient. He's playing at the bottom of the orchestra. He's got these slowly ascending melodies. And then later on, he busts into these syncopated, you know, aggressive melodies. So let's play an example of what that means in terms of the music. So he starts down here. And then later in the song, he's doing this aggressive thing. So he's mixing these low notes, these visceral sounds with these really aggressive melodies. And of course, for both these movies, Frankenstein and Godzilla, you know, well, actually, but Godzilla is a movie. Godzilla's got all this crazy monster stuff going on the screen, so it really feeds the sense of disturbing, unearthly, surreal, and terrifying uh, business of seeing, you know, a giant monster roaming through your town. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about Psycho, 
uh, Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece, um, Psycho leverages a different set of these same characteristics because Psycho was also composed uh, in a full film score, uh, but uh, Hitchcock uses it to great effect uh, to create this sort of dissonance. What he does is he uses a lot of really weird harmony, and I'm going to show you what that sounds like. He's got very aggressive melodies. I mean, the man's stabbing a woman to death. That's about as aggressive as it gets. And then tonal extremes, using these extreme notes up and down the sound scale with the orchestra. The whole the whole effect together is is you know is is not only terrifying, it's somewhat sickening. And I think that was the intention. So if we listen to those notes for a second, I'm going to play you a little a, a little example of how this builds. Okay, it starts at the very top of the keyboard. Later on, it goes to the bottom, but I can't play all those notes at the same time. So I'll just give you a sense of how this sounds. This is the this is the shower room scene, folks. This is what this is where it all comes together or falls apart, depending on your perspective. to that in the orchestra the interesting thing is uh, there's a rule of sort of orchestration that strings can play dissonant notes and sound softer so you can get away with more the scale he's using is really disturbing here are the notes that were just played all mushed together so you can hear them that's the quote-unquote harmony <laughs> and uh, obviously surreal and so the net result, even without the context of the movie and years after I've seen it, still bothers me, right? It's still uncomfortable. Far from a human uh, thought or, or feeling as possible. And so Hitchcock, uh, in that revolutionary movie, accomplishes something revolutionary in the score as well, because he's he's broken all the rules. There's no there's no movie that had this this soundtrack before it, and as with a lot of really important movies, it wouldn't be the same without the soundtrack. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if you played Mozart during Psycho, it wouldn't be anywhere near as disturbing. Oh, might be disturbing to Mozart, but that's a different thing. So, so just to just to kind of summarize our, our little chat here, you know, to make music scary, it's got to be disturbing with weird harmonies. It's got to be intense with aggressive melodies. It's got to be dramatic, something that builds up towards some climax that's really, uh, you know, anticipate something very uncomfortable it's got to be visceral it's got to get you in the gut it's got to be strange something that you haven't heard before and don't even know what it is and finally surreal using sounds and and parts of of the the sonic scale that don't fit well together and and the whole effect is one of what we musicians call dissonance everything's dissonant doesn't fit doesn't work but it's building towards something which is mm -hmm. kind of a paradox but that's what makes Halloween music deliciously scary. And we're back in the main studio. Do we want to talk about what's next? Do we even know what's next? Do we know what's next? I don't. I don't. I think we've... I, I, I'm i going to speak for you. <laughs> I hope uh -oh. it's the right... I think we both enjoyed this. Oh yes, no, this was this is this was a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. I it mean, was, I I thought it was going to be fun, but I didn't realize it was going to be this fun. 
Okay, good. And it, it's been it's been fun for me. And there's nothing I like more than chatting with you. I mean, basically, we've been rehearsing for this. Like, our whole marriage. Our whole marriage. <laughs> well, every, certainly every morning of the pandemic where yeah. I would come out and make a pot of tea and we'd sit and we'd, we'd chat. Um, so uh, we don't know what we're going to do next. We'd like to keep it going, but we also... Um, it's been a little bit more work than we thought for this format. And we're going to see if we can come up with a format that is uh, more sustainable. And also, if there's anything you think of, uh, you the listener, that you'd like us to do or talk about, um, let us know. And we can, we can put it in the mix. That would be nice. I would feel like I'm not just talking to the ether. Yes, I'm. I'm gonna go and make sure that I've got um, an email link um, up on the website. And tell your friends. Tell your friends. Tell all your friends. <laughs> so we have more than than just double digits. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell your neighbors' friends. Tell your friends' neighbors. Yes. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you so much. We really uh, we've enjoyed this, and we hope you've enjoyed this too. Yes, I, I think she said it perfectly. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Bye.